0: everywhere will you please stop bugging me? My favorite Martian I know some of you who are uh, maybe 50 and up would know that show but the rest of you maybe not Um, that was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid because I loved uh, my favorite Martian was a guy who landed on earth and he was a Martian and he could do all these crazy tricks and have control over things and and I just thought that was awesome when I lived in Branson Missouri in my early 20s I had a girlfriend and we found out we both loved that show so we used to um, pretend that we could do that finger thing and let's say we're in a room like this and one of you got up to go to the bathroom let's say it's Brandy over there and I go mm, as if I was controlling her and if anybody moved we'd always mm, we just move our finger along with them <laughs> just so we could feel like we were in control and um, you know it's, it's true we do like to be in control don't we we learned this early as kids growing up and um, I have a new granddaughter, and she's about a year and a half. And we get Snapchats all the time about the new things that she's learning to say or do and have control over her environment. And we all, we all grow up like this. We're all looking for a way to go, look at, look at, look at what I can do. And so it seems that the more that we get praise for it, the more we keep doing those things. Um, if I find something that can make mom and dad smile or laugh, then I probably keep doing those things. And if I don't get a good response, then maybe i double down and try harder, or maybe i go to something else and look for another trick. But we all kind of learn our tricks of something that we can do to try to control. Uh, For me and my family, some big ones that our family loved to do was sports, any kind of sports, but basketball was a big one and softball was a big one. Um, Chess was another one. We had eight kids in our family, and so we'd always like, play against each other and see who'd come out on top and all this and so that was another big one. Um, Telling jokes and just being funny around the dinner table, it was like it was just a big laugh fest at our dinner table because we were always telling jokes and and that kind of thing. Um, But always looking for, hey look at look at you know, to get attention. But we also learn what not to do. We learn just not to touch a hot stove or Stick your fingers in the door when it's closing, in the crack there. Pain is a powerful teacher. Uh, I remember in first grade, I got a D, as in dog, in a class. I went to a private Christian school and this was a class on scripture memory, go figure, um, but I got a D <laughs> first grade. And um, I came home, it was the first year I'd been to school and got grades, so I came home and my brothers and sisters were like, "Friend, you got a D! Well, I couldn't tell if that was a good thing or a bad thing. I just, you know, they were like, oh my God, you got a D! Whoa! <laughs> and Then I'm starting to catch on, like, oh, the D, that's not a good thing, that's a bad thing. And I thought, well, I can fix that. Got a pen, took that D, and made it a B. (laughs) And and then I got in trouble, and I just uh, made a bigger mess out of it. But um, I learned that you're not supposed to do that, and that D's aren't so hot. Uh, Sometimes we don't really know if something's a problem or not until you go down that path, and you just try something and then maybe you get in trouble for it, like maybe you've seen kids do this, put like a whole roll of toilet paper in the toilet, and they don't know it's a problem, it just looks like fun, right? Um, When I was a kid, we had a big tube of toothpaste, those great big ones, because we had a big family, and I thought it would be fun to take a nail and punch a bunch of holes so that when you squished it, it would go, you know, out of all holes. Dad didn't think that was so funny! He got super mad and I felt incredible amount of shame over poking holes in the toothpaste. So if you think about your life and growing up, what what did you do to get attention? What did you do to get noticed? What did you do to have somebody look at you and see you? Was it being musical or artistic or funny or quiet, and obedient, or helpful, or, um, you know, what were the ways that you just got noticed? And what did you find yourself to do to try to control any hurt, or rejection, or failure, or pain? What did you do in the midst of that, too? Did you turn to video games? Did you go watch TV? Did you shut yourself up in your room and just go to sleep for several hours? Did you turn to food for comfort? Did you um, blame and just turn the focus back on somebody else? Maybe as as you got to be a teenager, maybe you turned to drinking or pills or drugs or cigarettes or, you know, some other kind of outlet like that. Over time, we tend to repeat the same things over and over and over again, whether it's the things that worked for us or the things that protect ourselves from pain. And pretty soon, habits turn into full-blown patterns, and patterns go right into our personality, our whole being, our whole um, identity. When you boil it all down, um, we start to adopt these patterns as ways of things that kind of define us. You could be known as the person in your family. If you even think about this, I bet you could come up with one. If If your brothers and sisters were talking about you, how would they label you? Were you the quiet one, the athletic one, the smart one, the funny one, the shining star, the princess, the nerd, the loud one, the strong one, the problem one, the rebellious one, the weak one, the troubled one, the addicted one, the responsible one? What kind of a one were you known as? so when you when you really think about what's at the core of what drives a lot of our behavior I found it's really one of these two things a lot of the times growing up and our behavior is motivated by one getting our needs met and two protecting ourselves from pain and when I'm talking about needs here I'm talking about the kind of needs that are like the relational needs emotional needs things like value the need to feel valued worthy Um, significant, important, to have respect, uh, to have belonging, a sense of security or safety, and ultimately love. And these are so important that we will fight for them. And I think the world kind of has this equation, nobody says it out loud, but this equation about our worth and value that goes something like this. Our performance, in whatever you choose, uh, plus what other people think about me, equals my worth and value. And that's a lot of how we start to operate. We try to get as much as we can with number one, with avoiding the most of number two as possible, and that's what we tend to do. The attention and the love and the being noticed is so great that, you know, for years I worked with troubled teenagers, and there's a a verse in Proverbs that really spoke to me that Even if there's, like, no attention, then negative attention is better than none at all. This verse in Proverbs 27 says this, One who is full loathes honey, but to the one who is hungry, every bitter thing tastes sweet. Even the bitter things taste sweet when you're hungry. When you're hungry for attention or love or connection, it's like, I'm so hungry for that, that even negative attention is better than none at all and even that can taste sweet so when we think about like our behavior largely driven by um, getting my needs met or protecting myself from hurt or pain you might be thinking well what's wrong with that what's wrong with that well maybe nothing i mean when it comes to just if there's things i just enjoy in life and of course there's things you control like i learned to ride a bike or drive a car or you know i just enjoy some things um, but it's different if I start to look to that to uh, get my worth and value and my identity wrapped up in that um, if it's me being in control my needs my needs my needs and I'm going to be in control of protecting from pain protecting from pain then it's about me being in control and a lot of times those patterns get so ingrained that those patterns start to control us we're no longer in control of those things they start to control us and define us john 12:43 says this for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from god and then galatians 1:10: for am i now seeking the approval of man or of god or am i trying to please man If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We've turned away from God, our creator, towards the created to give us what they can't give. We could go back to the Garden of Eden and look all the way back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you think about the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of good, well, that sounds like getting your needs met, knowledge of the good. Oh, I know how to get the good. I'll do this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And I'll get the good. And the knowledge of evil sounds like protecting myself from pain. Like, oh, evil. I'm going to protect from evil. And I'll, yeah, I have knowledge of it. And I'm, I know where I need to like, back off. Either way, when we, at the Garden of Eden, when we lost connection with God, we turned to control. And I'm the one in control. You're the one in control. I'm going to decide how to make life work and be in control. Jeremiah seventeen five says, "Thus says the Lord: Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord." Like there's there's like a curse that goes along with that. Um, throughout the Old Testament, there was a lot of talk about what kind of king they were going to have. Like who was going to be in control? If there was a good king or a bad king? And when there was no king. Um, these periods where there was no king there's this verse that is said several times and one of them is in Judges 21-25 and it says in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in their own eyes if there's no king and there's no God then I'm going to do what I'm going to do I'm going to do what's right in my eyes and that's truly our culture Uh, have it your way, just do it You know, everything you get bombarded with is like, hey, if it feels good, do it. Hey, whatever you think is best for you. It's really, we are inundated with those messages of, hey, you're in control. Uh, I did a Google search on control freaks. Okay, so I did a Google search, and the first thing that came up, first article, six signs that someone in your life is a control freak. So I read all those, and I went, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty true. And then the second article was 10 signs that you were dealing with a control freak. And then the third one was 20 glaring signs that you have a control freak. And I went. this went on for pages. You know those little numbers at the bottom? You click on one, and two, and three, and just more, and more, and more, and more articles, so that there was just like a countless number of items that we had. And so I picked out my favorite top 60, OK? So. So I have like 60 of them up here. And um, if you look at these, you're like, okay, I do that and that and that and that and that and that and that. At least that's me. Um, but if you were just going to pick a number, pick a number. Somebody pick a number. Just throw a number between 1 and 60. Somebody pick a number. 20? What's number 20? Go back to number 20. 20. Have an answer for everything. What are we trying to control when we're having an answer for everything? Fear. Yeah, fear of what? Fear of being wrong. Being wrong. Yeah, fear, fear of being wrong. I, like, so the fear of being wrong leads to control, so I have to have an answer for everything. Pick another number. Somebody else. 36. 36. 36. Uh, giving guilt trips. What does giving guilt trips control? I did one of these last night with Bill, <laughs> didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> I think it works. <laughs> uh, what, what is giving guilt tricks, what does it control? It makes, makes me right and somebody wrong. It makes me right and somebody wrong, and if, if, I, if I can get someone to feel guilty, then what am I likely to get out of them? Okay. My way. <laughs> yeah, my way. Okay, let's do one more. One more number. 23. 23, 23 is impatience. What is impatience trying to control? I'm like time. Yeah, maybe time. If I'm impatient and I'm with somebody and I'm there, whatever it is that's going on and I'm impatient with them, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to control what? I'm trying to get them to hurry up. I'm trying to get them to act or do something. So behind behind every step of control is really about fear and about ultimately things I often can't control and I look at this list and I go okay I'm certainly a control freak I have a feeling you might come up with the same if you look at this list you'll notice that some of these are kinda active ways to control and some of these are more passive ways to control Um, if you think about these if you think about an argument between two people and one is yelling at the other who's in control of the argument they're, they're taking up all the airtime and they're yelling. Who's, who's in control? The yeller. But what if the other person is shut down and quiet and they walk away? Now who's in control? There's a passive route to control that often gets overlooked, but it's just as controlling as the other one, right? Uh, so if you put these on a continuum, you could put way over on this extreme, a uh, passive kind of control. And way over here, you could put a, what we would typically maybe call a control freak, or a controlling person. And then in the middle is this grounded, centered middle that the further we get out from the middle, the more unhealthy and the more extreme it gets. What I have found that uh, this center, the further out we get from the center is, what's in the center is the fruit of the spirit. You know what these are, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and, and self-control. It's not like control freak, and it's not like passivity over here, but it's somewhere in the middle. So the further out we get, the bigger the mess we make. If you take that simple uh, argument example, and one's trying to make a point, and the other one's trying to make their point, and then I get louder, and then I get louder, and then I get, I start cussing at you, and I get mad, and how dare you cuss at me, and I shut down, and I get quiet, and I'm moving away, and don't you dare go away from me, and I leave the house, and I'm coming after you, and I'm calling your cell phone ten times, where'd you go? And and so, can anybody relate to that? Maybe a little? So, sometimes the louder I get, the more defensive I get, the more you interrupt me, the more it just gets to a bigger and bigger mess until finally we just we just disconnect. We have, we have no more connection. Uh, another example might be, let's say you have a stressful day at work and there's too much to get done and so you take your work home with you and you're so exhausted from the day, you think, oh man, I just, I'm gonna have a drink. Oh man, that was so relaxing, too would surely be better. And now I really feel good, and oh, I could get to that work, but I'm so relaxed right now that a third would be nice, and maybe even a fourth. And then I fall asleep on the couch, and oh my gosh, I oversleep the alarm, and now I'm late to work, and I come late, and I don't have my stuff done, the boss yells at me, and now I'm in more trouble, and I go home that day, and now I need a bigger drink, and another drink, and another drink, and then I sleep some more and now i just i hate my job and i go to work and i have a bad attitude and i'm a little hungover and i have another bad day and then i go home and drink some more and it's like the mess just keeps getting bigger right we get so caught up in trying to control what we can't that we lose sight of what we can and by trying to make to trying to be in control we just often make a bigger mess and sometimes those things we set out to control end up controlling us. Our attitude, our happiness, our, our whatever starts to take over. Uh, you guys know the Serenity Prayer? I found this little cartoon that I could relate to, and I thought maybe I'd share this with you. On the left it says, that's the Serenity Prayer on the left. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, what if you want to change the things you can't, and you're too scared to change the things you can, and you can't tell the difference between the two? Well, then you're normal. That's pretty much what we all do. When I was thinking about kind of the message of this, I really, um, it dawned on me that this whole message is really right here in the, book, the big book. <laughs> in the, the, Dr. Seuss the cat in the hat comes back. You'll remember this story I bet and um, I'm just gonna breeze through it a little bit. Of, you know here's the story. The cat's taking a bath with eating, ice, eating cake with pink icing on the cake and he gets a pink ring around the tub. Well he cleans up the pink ring with a white dress and now the white dress is a mess. Well then he takes the dress and he whacks it on the wall and now the wall's a mess. And then he wipes the wall with a shoe, only to make the shoe all pink, and then he wipes the shoes onto the rug, and now the rug is a mess. Then he shakes the rug on the bed, and now the bed's a mess, and finally he admits he can't do this alone. So he brings out help from under his hat, and he takes off his hat, and here's little cats, A, B, and C, who help him get the mess out of the house, and they manage to get it on the TV and blow it out of the house onto the snow. Except now, of course, there's pink spots on the snow. So he brings out cats D, E, and F, and they try to kill the spots with their little pop bun, their little pop guns, and it just makes more spots and more spots and more spots until finally there's such a big mess that there's pink everywhere. And it's all pink. Whoa, what a mess we've made. So far beyond our control that the more we try to control it, the worst it gets. Who can help us get off this crazy cycle that we're in? We have spots everywhere that we just can't seem to get rid of. In Jeremiah thirteen twenty three, it says this. Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard, his spots? Then also you too can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. If we just take the, take the word evil and put in control, you're so accustomed to the control thing. Could you ever just go, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I, I can't. I keep doing it right and left constantly. Um, we can't control our controlling with more control. Uh, here's another version of the serenity prayer. I thought this is getting closer. Um, this was written by a priest named James Martin, and he wrote this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, which is pretty much everyone since I'm clearly not you, God, at least the last time I checked. And while you're at it, God, please give me the courage to change what I need to change about myself, which is, frankly, a lot, since, once again, I'm not you, and which means I'm not perfect. It's better for me to focus on changing myself than to worry about changing other people, who, as you'll no doubt remember me saying, I can't change anyway. Finally, give me the wisdom to just shut up whenever I think that I'm clearly smarter than everyone else in the room and that no one knows what they're talking about except me and that I alone have all the answers basically God grant me the wisdom to remember that I'm not you amen that that got a little closer to how I feel and yet there are some things about myself when those patterns have gotten so deep that I can't even change that about myself it runs so deep into who I've become that it seems so hard to change. Proverbs 14 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Death of who we most are. Like Those controlling ways start to define us and they we lose sight of our most authentic being. And the cry of our soul becomes what's expressed in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord, who is in control. In Romans 10, where it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is in control. If we confess that he's in control and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You will be saved. So, is God like a Lord who just wants to lord it over us? Is He just a bigger control freak than we are? And He's going to win because He's going to lord it over us? Like, what kind of a Lord is He? What does He want of us? What is, what kind of, what's He asking us to do? In John 15, 5, it says, what I believe is the key to all of this he says I'm the vine and you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit apart from me you can do nothing as a Lord he's just saying come hang out with me he's saying come and be with me come and dwell in my presence come and come in let's sit together let's talk together let's let's commune together Um, that is as we are in the presence of his presence we are breathing in his life and becoming more and more like him our control brings death God's control brings life literally from the dead and bears fruit in us and through us we became control freaks ever since the beginning and as we learn to surrender that control to the vine, that we're connected to the source of life. The lordship of Christ isn't so much about him telling us what to do, but it's more about proclaiming what is already true. He's not lord of your life because you gave him permission. He's lord of your life. Now, you may recognize it or not. You might agree with it or not. You might confess it or not. But he's lord over everything. He's in control. And in that, we can find rest the invitation that God brings to us is that when we're connected to him we are already loved and valued and significant and important and and, um, deeply seen, deeply noticed, deeply known. And so when we're filled up in that sense of security we're not turning externally to look for it all out here that we're connecting to the vine. When we're connected to him, we experience a type of wisdom that we could never get on our own. When we have decisions to make or a way that we need to speak to somebody or a problem in front of us in life, of something that we're needing to figure out. When we're connected to him, we experience his grace, his forgiveness, his love. And when we surrender our control to his control, we experience the greatest power of all, which is love. The more we generally hang out with somebody, the more we tend to become like them. And that's ever so true as with God. We start to bear fruit. And we have something, some tasty fruit to offer our neighbor when we're connected to him. Once again, the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is self-control, but the love and the joy and the peace is what is the result or the byproduct of us hanging out with him rather than something we're trying to figure out and do. In 1 John 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. The more that we experience his love, the more that we naturally will end up passing that on to other people around us. The kind of connection that God invites us to is like the connection the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have with each other. Sometimes I think when we think about connection, we think, oh, we're going to be one with your spouse or one with a friend or connected, then we start to lose ourselves. But that's really not true, I don't think. I think in the Trinity, you have this perfect blend of oneness and yet three very individual beings that they didn't lose their individuality in the midst of that. In fact, it was enhanced. So if I just had to describe, you know, even what I've experienced in my own life, of what does that time with Jesus look like? You know, is it just about, like, God, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And, you know, it's just not all that fun and engaging. It's just I'm going to follow the rules, and I'm going to be a good girl, and I'm going to, you know, do all that. But there's such a different thing that he's inviting us to. It's not that kind of control. That's the kind of control we know of that I find when I'm, when I'm entering into that abiding with Him, it means this. I can just come to God and share, well, what are my thoughts? What are my ideas? What are my opinions? If I have a decision or something to do, it's like, here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? Kind of like you do with a friend. Well, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think of what I think? And you may go, well, there's this, or well, there's that. And in the end, even if, you, even if you're coming up with something that's probably really not healthy, he's probably going to let you do it anyway and figure it out. I can come to him and share the emotions of what I'm feeling. If I'm feeling insecure or inadequate or shame or guilt or anger, that I don't have to hide that or drink it away or eat it away or shop it away, that I can just come to him and share it with him and connect in that way. And I think he holds me, embraces me, and tells me, that you know it's one thing I already am secure and important and valued so so when I feel insecure or inadequate it's just a feeling it's not a truth it's just a feeling it's gonna just pass through and it's gonna be okay because that's not my identity um, that that I can come and share my needs with him. I can share my longings my my dreams I can share my desires without flipping over into a demand there's a big difference when I just share my desires with God like here's what I desire but if I go into the demand now I'm trying to control God I'm gonna trick him into it Um, that I can that the more I am secure with Christ I can trust him with the outcomes rather than trying to control the outcomes constantly he knows what I need better than I do and the more secure I am, that I can share my thoughts, my feelings, my desires, because none of that is really what defines me, it's just my experience. And that He defines me. I can sit with the uncertainty or the mystery, and knowing that God's got the future, and He's already there. And when He does speak, there's a true wisdom. I can't tell you how many times that I think, oh, I could do A or B, and It's not until I slow down and process it with God and just talk to him that I come up with C, D, E, and F. Like, I didn't even think of that. I just think A and B. And there's sometimes a very creativity with the Holy Spirit of true wisdom of where to act and where to not act, where to speak up and where to just be quiet. And that all of life is a gift. Every breath is a gift. We did nothing to earn it. You didn't do anything to earn the fact that you have a life in this body here. It was was given to you. It was a gift. And that that brings us gratitude. So the lordship of Christ has a lot to do with surrendering our control towards connection, connection to him and with each other. So you know how the cat in the, the hat story ends? Do you remember this? Uh, He goes through all the little cats, A through, all the way down to X, Y. And then there's this tiny, little, this tiny, tiny, tiny little cat called Z. And it's so tiny you can't see him. He's invisible. And he comes in and, boom, takes all the pink out of the snow and cleans all the snow up. And bright bright as light. In Psalm 51.7, it says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean, and I shall be whiter than snow. That's the gospel, isn't it? Like At the cross, we have been made clean. There's nothing more to do but hang out. Do you want to come and hang out? We've already been made whole. We've already been made clean. He's inviting us to abide with him, him and you, and you and Him, and oh, it'll probably change you. But that's the invitation, is to freedom, and grace, and love, and connection. So when you come to communion today, I'm inviting you to come to the table, and um, here's what I'd love for you to do. Just quietly to yourself, come to communion and say, my name is Francis and I'm a control freak. Don't say Francis, say Jill, and William, and Bill, and Barry, and Well, you could do that. Come to communion and say Francis is a control freak. Um, That would be true, (laughs) even if everybody said it. Um, But in your own way, maybe there's some things on that list that was flashed up there that you see that you're, you're just like, ah, I recognize the control that I'm bringing. And the invitation at communion is to abide with him. And as you take communion, communion, commune with him. He's just inviting you to commune with him, and that's what you're receiving. So the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he poured it, saying, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Come and drink of it. The brown cups are wine. The lighter ones are juice. And they are all the body and blood of Christ. So come and abide with him. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, Bill and I came back from Chicago yesterday. So we were flying back yesterday afternoon. And we took the blue line from downtown to O'Hare. And we're on this train. And we're right next to this guy who started acting kind of scary to me and he was shivering and kind of shaking and crying and this and that and, and um, it looked like he was coming off of some kind of drugs that's the best i could come up with it and um, it was scary though to me i thought oh what if he pulls like a knife or a gun or like like it was just scary to me so we got up and moved to the other side of the train you know as far down as we could and we're sitting across from this young guy and this twenty-something guy, and um, this guy, this—he looked homeless. I don't know for sure, but anyway, he cries out in the middle, "Can anybody here help me?" And um, and again, it didn't draw me. It filled me with fear, and you know, fear made me just want to run away. So we were getting ready to deboard the train, in about that time. Um, This young guy across the aisle from us got up and went over and took this guy an apple, a little green apple. And I thought, that's it. (laughs) Here I'm preparing this message, and I'm like, (laughs) okay, that's it. What happens is we, we get afraid, and a fear makes us go into control, and control makes us disconnect and move away from somebody. But that young guy who took him the apple, I was like, well, that's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of someone who, was, who the love was overcoming the fear, whatever may have been there, that he offered the apple to the least of these. And um, so I felt bad. I felt sad. And at the same time, I go, you know, the fact that I missed that one, that doesn't make me any less acceptable to God. The fact that he took him the apple doesn't make him any more acceptable to God. This guy on the bench, in the seat, who was you know, going through whatever he was going through, none of that makes it, defines him. It's like God loves us all. And with freedom and grace and love, he gives us the freedom to, to always kind of listen to him of where we connect and where we disconnect. So I think my prayer this morning is just that we would leave with a heightened awareness of when the disconnection happens, whether it's to your spouse or your friend or your kids or a stranger. Um, like just to heighten that awareness of where we disconnect and where we connect. In Jesus' name, amen. The prayer team is over here if you would like prayer, and uh, they would love to pray with you, and have a wonderful day.